Does anyone know what the word capricious means? Capricious, not a very common word, but it is a useful word, I think. Capricious means given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. In seminary, we were assigned the task of reading various uh, creation myths from the ancient Near East. And other nations around Israel, of course, we know, worshipped false gods, and so they made up their own stories about where those false gods came from, their origin stories, if you will. And our assignment in, in school was to read those and then compare and contrast them to what we find in Scripture about God. And because these myths that these nations created were the product of the imagination of sinful humans, the gods were essentially just big, powerful humans who were invisible, and it sort of makes sense that that's the way that they would imagine that God would be. They were limited to their experience in a fallen world, so they imagined that the gods pretty much acted like them. One of the myths that we read was from Sumeria, and it's called the Atrahasis Epic. And these Sumerians imagined that the gods created humanity in order to get these humans to serve them. So the gods were tired of having to create everything. It's a lot of work. And so they thought, well, we'll make these humans in order to help us out. They can dig ditches and create rivers and lakes for us. This will be helpful. This will be great. They were sick of having to create everything, and so they, they needed humanity to do their work for them. But after a while, the gods got annoyed with these humans they were too loud. They were too irritating. The gods couldn't get the sleep that they needed. And so they decided to send a famine and disease and wild animals to try to kill these humans and sort of control the population a little bit. There was a sudden change in the gods' attitude towards humanity. They got annoyed and as a result tried to wipe them out. And I think we've all sort of experienced that level of fickleness on a human level, to some degree or another, you might know someone whose emotional state is just really hard to predict. You never know what to expect. And that's sort of how they imagined the gods to be. Maybe you know somebody whose loyalty shifts really easily or quickly as conditions change. Well, that's the way that they imagined that God was. Maybe they were just uh, unpredictable. Maybe you know somebody who just, you never quite know the way that they're going to respond to you or if they like you or not, you just never know. That's the way that they imagined that the gods were, that the gods were capricious, like a lousy politician who's willing to do or say whatever it takes to obtain and preserve power. No actual core convictions, willing to sort of flip-flop given the circumstances to, if, as long as I can get my power, willing to do or say whatever it takes. If we were limited to our own human experience, we might imagine that God is just like that, like a big politician in the sky. But the creator that we find in Scripture as he reveals himself to us comes as a pleasant surprise. He's not like sinful humanity. There is a very important distinction between our creator and his creation. Humanity can and is, can be and is, fickle or mutable, which is just from the Latin word for change, mutable. This is where we get our word uh, mutate from, to change forms. We are impulsive, inconsistent, uh, irrational, erratic, temperamental, unstable, capricious. 
God cannot be any of those things. Numbers 23, 19 puts it this way. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is faithful, steadfast, constant, unchanging, incorruptible, dependable. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because it is different from everything that we experience in creation. Everything changes, which is why we need God himself to reveal himself to us, which is what we find in Scripture so that we're not left to our own imaginations or our own experience in a fallen world to create a God after our own image. And so he reveals himself to us in his word by way of analogy, ways that we would understand. He's like a sure and steady anchor. He's like a star that never fades. He's like a rock that is eternal. God does not change. This is what we call the doctrine of immutability. Immutability. God is unchangeable in every way. His essence, his attributes, his purposes, his consciousness, his character, his knowledge, those whom he loves. And if you'd like to think more about this particular doctrine, I'll invite you to go to the equip class called Infinite Perfections on September 17th, September 10th, to hear more about that doctrine in particular that God is immutable, and we're actually going to find out today's passage why that's good news. It's not some sort of systematic, dry doctrine that has no effect on real life. God's immutability is good news. The structure of the book of Malachi is built around questions and answers. It's essentially six dialogues or disputes between God and his people, and each of these disputes has three aspects to them. The prophet declares a statement from God And then he articulates Israel's objection to that statement from God. And then he provides a response from God to Israel in response to their objection. Here's the dispute from today's section. The statement comes in verse 7. You are robbing me. They object. How are we robbing you? God's response. In your tithes and contributions. And verse 8, now you might be wondering what God's unchanging nature has to do with tithes and offerings, and that would be a fair question. Here's the short version that I hopefully will bring out of the passage for us this morning. God is dependable because he never changes. That's good news because it means that he will always come through in his promises, And so we should trust his promises and depend on him for provision instead of ourselves. Because when we do that, it actually reveals a heart within us that honors and trusts God as opposed to a heart that fears that God simply doesn't have what it takes or that he's not going to come through or that he's fickle, that he's capricious. I submit that the big idea of this passage is this. Commitment to stewardship is an act of faith in our dependable God. Commitment to stewardship is an act of faith in our dependable God. Three sections. 
First, God is not capricious, and that's good news, just from verse 6. Second, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, verses 7 through 9. Third, trust God and be free of fearful self-preservation, verses 10 through 12. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather together with your people and give you the praise that you alone are due, to be reminded from your supernatural revelation of yourself who you are. Father, we are so prone to forget as we're tossed to and fro by every change and instance of suffering or doubt we can, we can become complacent and we can become amnesiacs and we can forget who you have told us you are. And we're prone to distrust. And so we ask that you would work in our hearts this morning by your spirit, through your word, to help us to trust you more and to take great joy in knowing that you are our dependable God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, just from verse 6, God is not capricious, and that's good news. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is immutable, which means that he is unchangeable in every way. He's not capricious. He is not given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. Now, why would God need to state that? Why would that even come up in the book of Malachi? Well, in the section just before this, Israel accused God of being indifferent to injustice. They're looking around. They're seeing that the wicked are actually flourishing. It does not seem like the wicked are being judged. And so they figured, well, maybe God changed his mind. Maybe God delights in evil now. He's letting evil people get away with their evil, so maybe he changed his mind. Maybe now he thinks it's cool. He didn't before. Apparently now he does, which, of course, is an attack on God's character. God does not delight in evil. He does not ever approve or look upon evil favorably. And he will bring his justice one day, which is what we talked about in the section just before this. So there is a a sober warning in the fact that God is unchanging in his nature. But the flip side is what we see today. The fact that he doesn't change is good news for his people. Notice that he refers to Israel as the children of Jacob, which should remind us of Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, where the prophet reaffirms God's word to his people. He says, I have loved Jacob which means he has set his unique, covenantal, steadfast love upon Jacob and his children, which is Israel. So throughout this book, he's been laying out example after example of how Israel actually does deserve to be consumed in God's wrath. They've broken the covenant that they've made with God over and over again, just about in every way possible. But... Their unfaithfulness does not mean that God was going to change his mind about his promises. He is not fickle like that. 
They might have expected him to act like the gods of all those man-made religions from the nations that surrounded him, but that is not the case. God does not change. Therefore, Israel is not consumed. Because of his great love, we are not overcome. God's immutability is difficult to understand, but I hope you understand why this is good news. We can trust that God is dependable because he is not subject to the sort of sinful, debilitating passions that we are subject and prone to in a fallen world. He cannot be touched by evil, and he will never delight in it. And his covenant love is not conditioned on our performance. He didn't pick Israel because they were dope. He picked Israel because of his great love. God doesn't get sick of you when you wake him up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. He invites it. He doesn't need shut-eye. This is not how this works. He is not annoyed by it. This is hard to believe, though, isn't it? Because everyone else we experience in life is going to have a limit to how much they're willing to put up with. But here is the blessed and pleasant surprise that comes to us in the form of a promise from God's word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that the one who comes to God by faith in Christ will by no means be cast out. And you can take that to the bank because God does not change. There is no sin in any of us that has such height and breadth that it can't be bought with Jesus' blood or covered by his death. God's unchanging nature and character means that you can trust his word. This is good news. What once pleased God can never displease him. He will not revoke his free offer of salvation. Meditating on God's immutable goodness should have some effect in us. It should draw us away from our own sinful capriciousness that is no doubt in each of our hearts. What might that look like for you? In your parenting, do you think that your kids find themselves constantly wondering whether or not you genuinely love them? In your prayer life, do you ask God in faith or with doubting? Like a double-minded man who is unstable in all your ways. In your confession of the faith, do you go limping between different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If not, then don't. In your knowledge of God, are you tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes? Are you led away by diverse and strange teachings? In your commitment in love to those whom God has given to you in the church, are you working side by side in the gospel with each other, building them up? Or are you biting and devouring them? God's blessed immutability is an invitation to each of us to recognize the sinfulness and fickleness 
of our own hearts and to pursue stability in our passions. The reason that Israel has not been consumed is that the Lord is not capricious. He doesn't leave or forsake his people. And he is patient and he is gracious and he calls us to repentance. Notice, next, second, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verses 7 through 9, I'll read that back into our hearing. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. So God calls them to return. The word there can be translated as repent, to to turn back. They have turned aside from God, and so the invitation comes to turn back. And when they do that, when they turn back, they will find that God is still there. He is still waiting for them in patience. And so speaking in a human way, it would appear that God himself was returning and repenting, returning to them as well. But we know that God doesn't change. But Israel's relation to him would change. He he would turn from his course of action, which was disciplining their sin, and he would begin to bless them again. This imagery, of course, reminds us of the parable that Jesus tells about that prodigal son. God has a son called Israel who has these blessings, and they've taken these blessings and they've run from him. And he's waiting until they come to the end of themselves so that they can return to him. And when he sees them, to run after them and embrace them in compassion and joy. The dispute, though, kicks in in verse 8. They ask what they even need to repent of. What do we need to turn from? Well, turn from robbing God. And they ask, what are you talking about? How are we robbing God? Well, apparently they're shocked or they're confused or they're offended by the very idea that they would be robbing God. And the response is quick and tight. Just a couple quick words. In your tithes and contributions. In other words, do what is right with your giving. Their lack of faithfulness in giving in their offering had invited a curse, apparently of a drought, which will make more sense in the next section. We understand, of course, right, that God does not need Israel's sacrifices. We we recognize that he doesn't need their worship. He does not lack anything. God is not insecure. He's not hurt. His blessedness does not rise or fall depending on our actions. And so they're not genuinely robbing God of anything. But it is an accurate description of what Israel is aiming to do within their own hearts and their posture towards God. This section simply is a reminder of Israel's covenant duties under the law. We recall that the prophet was in part meant to come to Israel and say, hey, return to your obedience. Remember the agreement that we had between God and you. This is one more example. They were instructed by the law to be faithful in their tithes and offerings, contributions. Giving was at the very heart of the covenant that they had with God. 
The tithe was a regular portion of their income, whether that was through their produce or their animals or like a financial equivalent to that. A tithe means 10%. But then they would also have special feast days where they would take up additional offerings, which were meant in part to be distributed among like the sojourners, the poor, the fatherless, the widows, a benevolent sort of a thing. So they were to give their offerings by faith out of gratitude as a regular ongoing habit, which was meant to reinforce the reality in their hearts that everything they had came from God. Nothing that they had was owed to their own ability to stir it up. Everything they had came from God, and their offering, their tithing, was a tangible reminder of that fact. It was a behavior that signified not only their allegiance to God, but their faith that he is dependable. Over time, since they neglected to show through their giving that their possessions truly did belong to God, they gradually started to give into that sinful delusion that their possessions actually owned them. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving for money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is about worship. At our worst, we offer our love and our trust and our devotion and our service to money. The belief that money itself, rather than God, is what is able to provide what we want, whether that's peace or comfort or blessedness, that is the lie that we're all prone to believe. It's a lie that is all too easy to believe, that it is money that is giving me these things, not God. And it's counteracted through the habitual behavior of reminding ourselves that it is indeed a lie by holding what we own with an open hand rather than a clenched fist. Their lack of faithfulness in their stewardship was an indicator that they were neglecting God altogether. It's important to acknowledge, uh, as we're thinking about this, that this section comes in a wider context of a whole bunch of disputes between God and his people. This is simply one more symptom that they have turned aside from God. We might read just this section And we might think, well, that money itself is actually the primary concern of God here. We might even be motivated by guilt to change our behavior. But we must see this section as one piece of a bigger concept. There's a bigger problem here than offerings and contributions. The bigger problem is the heart of worship. God was not looking for them to just write a check to cover their sins. That's not how that works. He wasn't looking for indulgences. If they gave their tithes, if they gave their offerings, and yet still divorced their spouses, married pagans, treated others who were uh, susceptible and oppressed to contempt, if they misrepresented God's word, their consistent tithing would not fend off the curse. This is not ultimately about the money. It's about the heart. 
Their lack of faithful giving was just one more indicator that their hearts had turned from God. And that is the context of the invitation here to return to God with their affections. I mean, you'd have to really seriously hate somebody. There has to be like a legit level of malice in order to rob them. You'd have to really hate somebody to forcefully take what is rightfully theirs. That is the issue here. And so God invites them patiently to return to him. And he invites them to do something that frankly is a bit shocking in the next section. He invites them to put him to the test. And in so doing, they would see that he is dependable and that they would be freed from their fearful self-preservation. Third, trust God and be free of fearful self-preservation. Verses 10 through 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The storehouse was a spot in the temple where the tithes and offerings were kept. And so we, we know, of course, from having read earlier in this book, that the priests were bringing some tithes and offerings. They were bringing what, what is described as polluted food into the temple. Uh, those sick and lame animals that were probably not a great source of nourishment or food. Because you see, those, those animals were a supply for the offerings, but they were also a source of food to help provide for the priests and the servants and for the poor. And so he invites them now, okay, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, into the temple, not the sick and lame tithe. He's essentially inviting them to return to him in faith with their affections, trusting in his promises. And he's, he invites them to test or prove that he is dependable. That's shocking. It was to me because we read in multiple places in Scripture that we are not to put God to the test. Israel tested God in their wilderness wandering before they entered into the land. And we know that that was a bad thing. That didn't go well. They were thirsty. They were impatient. They were quarreling. They were upset. And they were questioning whether God was actually really with them in the wilderness as they're wandering. And then, of course, in Jesus' wilderness wandering, as he's being tempted by Satan, Satan tempts him to throw himself off of a cliff to see whether or not God would genuinely send his angels to catch him before he hits the ground. And Jesus responds by quoting that Old Testament passage where it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet, here's an invitation from God himself to put him to the test. How do we make sense of that? Well, in this instance, God is inviting his people. He is calling his people to act on his promises so that he has the opportunity to prove that they're true and dependable. This is an act of faith, whereas Israel's testing in the wilderness was a cynical act of doubt. The covenant agreement between God and Israel had warned 
They knew that disobedience would bring drought, and they knew that faithful obedience would bring rain. And so that is the promise that God is alluding to here. He's made a very specific promise explicitly to them as it relates to obedience and rain. So when he says the windows of heaven, the phrase as we find it here, it's a poetic way of saying rain. He's going to send rain. It's the same phrase that's used in Genesis 7 with Noah when it rains. And it's clear that he's talking about rain as he continues, even into verse 11. That God would rebuke the devourer like those locusts who would come and eat up the crops. And the fruit wouldn't fall from the vine before it's ripe, which is what happens to plants when they don't have sufficient water. And as a result of God's prospering his obedient people, the nations would witness that and they would say, God has blessed you. He has blessed you with rain and with healthy crops. Now, let's be clear. These are meteorological and agricultural promises that were intended for Israel somewhere around 450 B.C. So if you hear a preacher who invites you to plant a seed of faith in his or her ministry in order for God to open up the floodgates of heaven, in order to shower you with financial blessing, you should run in the opposite direction. The old covenant promise of rain made to the nation of Israel does not apply directly in a one-to-one correlation to the church or to an individual Christian, much less to America. So if someone tells you that it does, just be aware that they might be tapping into that same sort of sinful, self-centered greed that God is actually condemning here. There's a genuine principle here. A genuine principle related to giving that we must pay attention to. If our giving to God is a signal of the posture of our heart towards God, then we should carefully consider what this means for us. Israel had the principle of tithes and offerings, which probably would have added up to like 15 or 20% of their income. We don't have any clear instruction in the New Testament about particular amounts that we ought to give, like a tithe. I think one commentator gives some good guidance here. He said that you should give enough that you notice it in some way. Give enough that you notice it in some way. General wisdom, this is not thus saith the Lord. But if you think about it, it might be fairly easy to give a God an amount of money that makes no real difference in the way that you live your life. It would be harder to consistently give an amount that keeps you from doing something that you want to do or getting something that you would like to receive. That's the principle at play here. Are you keeping the love of money from burrowing into your heart? A genuine sacrifice shows that you're willing to joyfully trust in God and serve his cause as a dependable God. But to be clear, this was never intended to be a way for Israel to manipulate God into giving them more blessing. This was not about appeasing God with like a little bit so that you can get a bigger return on investment. This is important. That's actually closer to the sorcery that he talks about in verse 5 that he calls out. You're not manipulating God by giving him this. He just condemned that level of manipulation of God as sorcery in verse 5. So we have to understand this section in light of the gospel. There is great reward in obeying God's statutes, his instruction. 
this does not mean that that reward will be immediate or even that we'll be able to receive it on this side of glory. But we are guaranteed to experience God's blessing either here or in the coming kingdom, which will actually be much better. But the obedience God calls us to uh, on this side of the cross is in obedience of repentance and faith. It is to obey the gospel, essentially. To trust that God is dependable and that God is not capricious. To trust, to believe that he has provided all that we need and more in Christ. It's to believe that he will forgive your sins and he will remember them no more. That he will one day return to judge the living and the dead and set all things right. It is to believe that nothing will separate you from the love of God and Christ. It is to believe that he will complete the good work that he began in you and in his church. It is to agree in faith that God is with you by his Holy Spirit. It is to trust that we can approach the throne of God with boldness. It is to accept in faith his offer of rest. It is to believe that you have eternal life that begins even now. All that is way better than even the best rainstorm. And we can trust that it's true because God isn't capricious. Those are explicit promises given to us by his word. And he's not going to change his mind at the last minute. But we can understand where Israel is coming from, I'm sure. Maybe they were afraid. That anxiety that Christ talked about in the Sermon on the Mount as we read at our call to worship text this morning. Maybe they were afraid that they weren't going to have enough for themselves. This drought is settling in. If I give my best to God... What if I don't have enough? So they might have thought that by keeping back their their best from God, they were just being frugal. But in reality, it was a sign of their lack of trust, a, a disbelief that God was dependable. They didn't think that he would continue to provide. They didn't think he was going to come through. They assumed the worst about him, that he was capricious. They did not see God as he has revealed himself to them, as a helper, as a treasure. The irony, of course, is that God was not the one who was being robbed. They were robbing themselves. The faithful stewardship of what God has graciously provided to them wasn't a place for for God to meet his own needs. It was a way to look to God in faith for him to meet their needs. And their fearful self-preservation kept them from finding the rest of trusting in God. Faithful stewardship demonstrates a heart that believes God is the dependable, trustworthy, unchanging source of all that we could ever need. And Jesus' life was a model of this trust. You can think of him throughout his life, but in the Garden of Gethsemane in particular, where he is banking everything on God's promises, trusting that the path of his loving, faithful father was more satisfying and more secure than his own. Even when that path forward looked terrifying, that path forward looked dim, it looked dark. And it's because of his faithfulness that we are able to know and witness the steadfast faithfulness of our unchanging God. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, let's 
we, we come to you with humility. Uh, and severe dependence, uh, recognizing that we, we, we need you by your word and your spirit to remind us of who you are, to root out the sin in our hearts of distrust. And so we ask that you would continue to work in us, even now as we observe communion together, that this would act as a sign, a tangible sign, a reminder of your faithfulness as we observe and reenact the drama of your gospel together. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.